Thank you, Judy, for the music. You know, it can be terrifying to do that, to come up and sing all by yourself in front of people. I couldn't help but remember my mom used to always want to get the kids up to sing in front of the church. We grew up in the Watertown Church, and it's like 30 people, you know, it was a small church. And so she would say, we're going to go sing a trio, my brother, or me and my sister and, uh, and my mom. And we'd get up there to sing some song, and my mom would be so nervous. Her knees would be knocking. She'd be shaking the stage, and she couldn't get anything out. So she'd be mouthing the words, and it would just be uh, my sister and I singing. Uh, but you do get used to it after a while. It's, uh, it's good for you to get that uh, experience. Um, I have to tell you, I, last time I gave this uh, message was in Fond du Lac, uh, was just last week in Fond du Lac, and it went like 45 minutes. And uh, that is sort of long. But to be honest with you, uh, before that, I gave it in New London. And then it was longer. <laughs> I have been told that I, I put some people to sleep there. And I've gotten word back that some of them are still sleeping. All right, so what was the first verse you memorized from Scripture? John 3.16, that's pretty common. Any others? Philippians 4.13, very Adventist. Others? Psalm 23, thank you for saying that. I did not pay her to say that, but I'm starting there. Psalm 23, and how many of you, you all memorized that when you were young, but how many of you, when you were memorizing that verse, it didn't make sense to you because you said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And as a child, that made no sense to you because it seemed as if you were saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I don't want him, right? Isn't that sort of how it went? Because you didn't understand the old English that what you were really saying was, I have want of nothing or I have need of nothing as long as the Lord is my shepherd. And it took years of getting used to the language to really start to understand that. The Bible is full of history and biographies and poetry and prose and uh, all kinds of language construction. Some of it's easy for us, some of it is not. Some of the Psalms are written as acrostics. I don't know if you were aware of that. So that in the Hebrew uh, language, the first line started with the first letter of their alphabet. The second line started with the second letter of their alphabet and so on all the way through the alphabet. Now you can't tell that from reading uh, the Psalms, like Psalm 25 is one of those that you would be familiar with. It's an acrostic. It was written every line in alphabetical order all the way through the Hebrew alphabet. Um, and yet it's a beautiful and flowing piece of uh, poetry. So how easy would it be for you to write an acrostic poem like they did in the Psalm? has to start with A. Next line is a B. Next line is a C. How far could you get? Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. Here we go. Anchetta, he's our pastor. See, this started with an A, right? I got that. Anchetta, he's our pastor, born where winter is mild, Carlos to his missus, daddy to his child. Isn't that nice how that just flows? Isn't that... Everybody, now I get to the E, everybody wonders how far this poem will come. Getting really hard now. Hallelujah, I am done. So, and that's, 
That's only eight letters. Now imagine going through the whole alphabet and then making it not sound like that's what you're intentionally trying to do. I mean, the Psalms are just beautifully, beautifully written. Um, but there are these parts of the Bible that sometimes we trip on, and that's what I want to talk about today. I want to try to give you today a new look at your Bible, okay? Maybe a, a, a fresh way of reading your Bible that helps, hopefully, to give you a little bit more perspective, a little bit better understanding in some of the passages that maybe you have struggled with or just giving more understanding with some of the passages that you're already comfortable with. So that's what I would like to do. So the first thing to talk about when we talk about reading the Bible, of course, when we read the Bible, we should ask for the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to guide us in our understanding, right? I mean, that's a given. And when we struggle understanding the Bible, we should ask for God's wisdom and helping us to understand that. But there are some things that I want you to know about the construction of the Bible. Some of these you probably know. Hopefully some of these you don't so that you're learning something new today. But let's talk first about translations. We're all familiar with the King James translation. Uh, let's see, that was originally translated in 1611. That's a long time ago. How many of you were around? No. They, uh, uh, people generally think that when you read the King James Version, you are reading the 1611 King James Version. You are not. You are reading a much later version. You are probably reading the 1769, 150 years later. Because when the, when the King James was first translated, there was no standardization of spelling. There were many ways to spell a word. There was not one way to spell a word. There were many ways to spell a word. Many ways to spell many words. And, uh, and punctuation was not standardized. So by 1769, the Oxford University update, that one used finally standardized spelling, standardized punctuation, corrected some of the errors in the original uh, 1611 translation of the King James. And, of course, most people find the King James difficult because it's written in that 600-year-old language that we just don't use anymore. And so it can be hard. Many people go to the new King James, which is really the same translation, but they get rid of the these and the thous, and they replace them with terms that we would use today. And that's what, when as I read today, I'll be reading from the, the new King James. But uh, everybody has their own uh, Bible that they prefer, and that's fine. I used to use a parallel Bible, which had four versions. It had the, I don't remember, I think it was the Living and the New Revised Standard and the King James and one other one, side by side. So you would open, you would open a page, you would open to John 3.16, and you could read that chapter in side by side in all four verses. Now, you know how thick a Bible is. You know how thick one Bible is. This was four Bibles. So it was a big, thick book with very, very thin pages. But there are many translations out there that are available, and I'm not here to promote one or the other. But I do want you to understand that there is a difference in the kinds of translations. There are Bibles that are translated, like the King James, like some of the other Bibles, where they go back and they look at the oldest manuscripts that they can find and then interpret those, translate them into a language that we understand today. So they would go back to the Septuagint. They would go back to the Masoretic text. They would go back to all of these older documents, put them together to understand what they think was best intended and put that into our language for today. That's a translation Bible, and there's many translations out there. But there are also paraphrased Bibles. And a paraphrased Bible is merely taking an existing translation Bible, like I might take my New King James, and I read it, and I say, you know what, this is what it means to me, and this is how I would word that. I'm, I'm paraphrasing what somebody else has already translated. So you need to understand, some Bibles are translation Bibles, going back to the original language, bringing them into a modern language. 
Others are paraphrased Bibles, where we take a Bible that's already been translated, and we just speak it in new words, what we think it means to us, okay? What we think it means. Adventists, many of you perhaps, use a paraphrased Bible. It's not a translation Bible, it's a paraphrased Bible, and it is called the Clear Word. That is clearly a paraphrased Bible. That is an Adventist with Adventist beliefs and Adventist uh, bias reading uh, New King James, for, for example, and then putting that into modern words so he thinks people will understand better what was intended. And there are other ones uh, that are out there as well that are, that are certainly not Adventist. So one of those would be uh, the Living Bible. The author of the Living Bible states straight out that it is a paraphrase. He wrote it for his young daughter so she could understand the Bible. And it became so popular it ended up being published and then a second version was done. Um, but just understand that. When you're having trouble with something, understand whether you're reading a paraphrased Bible or you're reading a translation Bible and maybe go to another, uh, another version that may assist you. And you know this already, but let me go through this. The original Bible, uh, the original scriptures, had no punctuation in them. Right? You knew that. There was no punctuation in the Bible. And, and Adventists are very quick to point out that uh, some of the punctuation that has been placed by translators since then perhaps didn't put the comma in the right place. Right? We would, quick, we would uh, quickly go to the words of Jesus on the, uh, as he's hanging on the cross and say, uh, Today... You shall be with me in paradise. You know, did he say, did Jesus say, this I say unto you, today you shall be with me in paradise? Or did he say, this I say unto you today, you shall be with me in paradise? The movement of that comma is very important. And, uh, of course, when the Bible was originally written, those original texts had no punctuation at all. Let me just give you one other example. I don't know if this will be meaningful to you, but in Ezekiel 33, we can look at a place where perhaps the comma could have been moved. Maybe it would have meant something different, not as drastically as the words of Jesus. But Ezekiel 33, you know, getting old is great fun. It is so entertaining. I'm laughing at myself. I keep going into our sunroom. I do my morning devotions in our sunroom, and I go to the wrong wall to turn the lights on. I just started doing that. I'm going to the, the light switch has never moved. All of a sudden, I'm going to the wrong wall to turn the lights on. So this morning, I got dressed and showered. I had to go do a, a, a sing in a trio for the national anthem. And uh, so I did that. I got showered, dressed, and everything. I probably shouldn't tell this story, should I? And, uh, and so I go back, and, I, and, uh, and uh, I'm getting ready for church. And I realize I had my T-shirt on backwards the whole time. Oh, what fun lies ahead of us. Ezekiel 33. Don't laugh that much. It's, not, it's just a little funny. Ezekiel 33, verse 10. Therefore you, O son of man, say to the house of Israel. Now here you've got a lot of comments. You've got a lot of punctuation. You've got quotes within quotes. Thus you say, if our transgressions and our sins lie upon us, and we pine away in them, how can we then live? Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn away from his way and live. Turn, turn, turn from your evil ways. Now, I'm not going to change the meaning significantly, but I'm going to change a little bit of punctuation. I'm going to change a comma into a period. Okay? So, therefore, you, O son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus you say, 
If our transgressions and our sins lie upon us and we pine away in them, how can we then live? Say to them, as I live. Period. I'm sorry, as I live, as I live, says the Lord God, then put the period. Okay, that's a different answer, is it not? I'm not saying, as I live, I have no pleasure. I'm saying that the way you should live is, as I live. And then I expand upon that. So that's just the difference between a comma and a period uh, that we would find in the Bible. So one thing that I would encourage you to do as you're reading the Bible and you're struggling with some stuff, consider the fact that punctuation, try to read it without punctuation. Try to move the punctuation around a little bit. See if that helps you. Look at different translations. We also know that capitalization was not included in the original text. All of those uh, original texts, the Old Testament is written in... uh, Hebrew, a little bit in Aramaic. They have no capital letters in that language. And the Greek was written in all capital letters. So that there was no differentiation between lowercase and uppercase. That has all been added since. Does that make a difference? Well, perhaps at times it does. Let's look at the word Lord. And this is in the, uh, this is how the sermon title comes from. If you look at the word Lord in the Bible, L-O-R-D. If you see that word, all lowercase, L-O-R-D, it means, it, it's simply a reference to a human ruler. It's sort of like saying, sir, okay? Yes, Lord. Yes, sir, if it's not capitalized. If it is capitalized, capital L and then lowercase o-r-d, then it's referring to deity. It's referring to a member of the Godhead. Um, I'll leave it at that. The other possibility there is if it's the first word in the sentence, right? If the first word in the sentence is Lord, it's going to be capitalized because that's a convention of our language. So then you might have to dig a little more to figure out what it's referring to. But what about when you see it in your Bible? You see this in the Old Testament where it says L-O-R-D and all four letters are capitalized. What does that mean? That's a very specific reference to one of the names of God. That is the tetragrammaton. If you're familiar with that term, tetragrammaton, tetra meaning four, grammaton meaning language. It literally means four letters. And that was Y-H-W-H in the Hebrew, lang- or in the Hebrew uh, alphabet. The Y-H-W-H. We would recognize that as Yahweh. Uh, we would normally pronounce it that way. Um, but that every time you see L-O-R-D and all four letters are capitalized, it's saying that. It's saying Yahweh God. Okay? It's interesting. I didn't know this until this morning. In my morning devotions, I was reading in Genesis, and I read um, the account of Abraham where the three men come to him is the way it's, the, the verse is introduced. It's three men who come to him and then warn him about the destruction of Sodom, right? And that's where Abraham has this, this conversation, and he says, well, well, you wouldn't destroy it for 50 people, would you? Remember that whole story? Well, if you read through there, it starts out capital L-O-R-D, and you'll see in, in other, um, uh, other uh, pronouns will be capitalized in, indicating that he's talking with, with uh, someone who is deity there. Because it starts out with men, and then it sounds like they're talking about angels. But after a while, Abraham is addressing him as L-O-R-D, all capital letters. He's saying Yahweh God. That he's, You're not going to destroy the city for 10, for 40, for 30, for 20, for 10 people, would you? So that's the tetragrammaton. You want to impress your friends, use that word. Tetragrammaton. Uh, it means four letters. And you've probably heard 
somewhere along the line in your teaching that that word was considered so holy by the Jews, they couldn't say it. They weren't allowed to say that word. They would have to substitute another word there because that word was considered too holy. And I didn't know this until recently. That was not always true. That was something that the Pharisees came up with as they, as they were coming into power and they were adding all these rules to God's law to how people could uh, avoid sinning. You know, they had rules about how far you could walk on a Sabbath day and they had a measure from the city how far you could walk because if you walked out to there and back, that was okay. But if you walked any farther, then you were working. See? Now, I ran into a fellow. You may have heard me tell this story before. I ran into a fellow uh, who was... Uh, uh, conservative, um, orthodox Jew uh, on a Sabbath day up in the Sylvania wilderness. I was out for a Sabbath walk. He and his family were out for a Sabbath walk. And uh, so we had a nice chat. We were talking, and uh, he's talking to me about, he's asking me some of what our beliefs are, and I'm asking him of what some of their beliefs are and uh, those kinds of things. And we were talking specifically about Sabbath. And he explained that he lived in an apart- a high-rise apartment building on the West Coast, um, and it was all, it was a Jewish uh, community. It was all Jewish people who were living in this high-rise apartment building. And as he t- was telling me examples of how they keep the Sabbath, he said, on the Sabbath day, this elevator is programmed, so it'll go from the ground floor to the first floor, stop, go to the second floor, stop, go to the third floor, stop, go to the, all the way up to the top, stopping at every single floor, and then on the way back down, stopping at every single floor. You know why they did that? Because they considered it work to push the button. You're laughing. But he was dead serious about that. Because they they had scripted to the nth degree what was acceptable and what was not acceptable to do on the Sabbath. Uh, Far from, I think, the spirit of what God intended in the fourth commandment. But that's what the Pharisees did. And the Pharisees said, you know, if you say that word, Yahweh, you're taking the Lord's name in vain because you're a sinful human and you, you can't say that name. But they used to, in the old days, say it all the time. That was something that the Pharisees came up with and added later on. All right. Um, where do I want to go next? Well, you can imagine how that created a problem for people in the synagogue as they're reading Scripture and they came across that word. They had to substitute. And normally they would substitute the word Adonai in there uh, instead, which is the Hebrew word for Lord or my Lord. All right. So um, we talk about this capitalization. You understand that any time like a pronoun is capitalized, it's referring to the Holy Spirit or to Jesus or or to God the Father. Uh, So that would be he, him, his, you, your, yours, all of those kinds of things. Uh, When it's referring to... uh, when it's referring to the Trinity, normally that's you'll see that uh, as capitalized word. Now, there's one other one that's uh, a little bit trickier. We've talked about the translation, and we've talked about punctuation, we've talked about capitalization, but the use of italics in your Bible. Now, if your Bible is like mine, it has two things. It has italicized words, and then it has, um, oh, I can't even remember what they call the other one. It's another form of slanted text. And to me, they look the same. But when they are quoting scripture, like a lot of times Paul or Matthew will quote Old Testament scriptures as they write, and that quoted scripture is offset with slanted type. It looks italicized as well. It's, it's a slightly different font, but my eye doesn't catch the difference. 
but I normally can tell when they're quoting scripture because that's a long phrase. The other time that you see uh, an italicized word, typically one or two words just by themselves, is when it is what is called supplied text. In other words, it's not in the original translation. It's not in the Hebrew language or it's not in the Greek language. If they're translating word for word, it's not there. But in order to help you understand what is being said in our language, they add the word. Okay? So, for example, so those of you who know Spanish, you will, you'll probably think that this is uh, pretty elementary of me. But when I ask someone in Spanish how old they are, I don't say, how old are you? I literally say to them, how many years have you? Okay? Cuando años tiene? How many years have you? Right? Uh, and so if that, if that was translated literally, if you were reading what I said literally, it would be awkward for you to read, how many years have you? It would make more sense for you to read, how old are you? Right? So the, the translators do that, and they will add a little word here and there to help add that meaning. So let's take a look. Oh, it's oblique text. That's the word I couldn't think of. Oblique text is what else is referenced in my Bible. But that's just for quoted scripture. So let's go to Genesis 19. Let me show you an example here of how the, the Bible translators are trying to help you understand the Bible better by adding a word, okay? Genesis 19. And this is uh, in that same area I was talking about that I was reading in my Bible study this morning where uh, now the, uh, these angels have come to visit Lot. And uh, they've come into his house, and the men from the city want Lot to open the door. Remember that story? All right, so let's look at verse 5. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them carnally. Carnally is italicized. That means the text is supplied. It is not in the original text. The original text said, bring them out so that we may know them. Now, the Bible translators recognize the fact that in Bible times when somebody said that, that we may know them, they knew what that meant. That meant they wanted to know them carnally. They didn't want to get friendly and shake hands and say, hi, how you doing? They wanted to know them carnally. They wanted to have physical relations with them. That's what's going on in the story, and the translators are adding that word so that you know for sure that's what they're talking about. Okay, so that's an example of them adding a word to clarify the meaning. Uh, turn with me to Deuteronomy 8.3. You're familiar with this because you know Jesus quotes this later. In 8.3 it says, So he humbled you and allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Man lives by every that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Word is italicized. In other words, in the original text it would have said something like, but man lives by all that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Not necessarily word all that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. But when Jesus quotes it later, in Greek, Jesus adds the word, word. He says in the Greek, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus 
uh, affirms that our translators are correct in adding that word in Deuteronomy 8. So we're good with that, right? All right. So are there times where the Bible translators perhaps add a word inaccurately that's changing the meaning of something? There is one, especially for Adventists, that you need to be uh, sensitive to, and that's in Daniel 8. So turn with me to Daniel 8. We'll read that as well. This is Daniel's vision, one of his visions. And this is the vision that includes uh, the little horn. Okay? So if we drop down to, uh, well, starting on verse 11 or so, there's a few places where there are uh, supplied texts. There is the italics here. But let me just read it through as it's written. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Now, that reads pretty well, does it not? And, uh, and uh, a light reading of that doesn't really trip you up. Everything seems to be okay. But there's a problem. Look at the words that have been added. Uh, the, ita the italicized words here, I have himself, sacrifices, uh, to the horn, sacrifices, and all this. The problem is to where they add the word sacrifices. It literally would have said this. Let me just take the italicized words out. He even exalted as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to oppose the daily, and he cast truth to the ground. He did and prospered. Okay? Now, we very quickly become biased in how we read this, in what is called confirmational bias, because we already have an idea what is what what we believe, and then we read things and then sort of fit that to our beliefs. So it's very easy to read this and fit to our beliefs. But remember the word sacrifice is supplied text. That's not in the original. Okay? And is it possible that when they're talking about the daily being taken away, it's not in fact talking about sacrifices, but something very different? And that is certainly what our Adventist founders believed. For example... Reading some text here. There was a time when we were nearly all united on this point. Our early pioneers nearly all agreed that the daily referred to paganism. This is true of William Miller, Joseph Bates, Uriah Smith, Stephen Haskell, James White, Hiram Edson, uh, J.N. Loborough, J.N. Andrews, Ellen White, to mention a few. They understood the daily to refer to paganism. They perceived that paganism was a hindrance to the setting up of the papacy. See, it's the succession of powers is what's being shown here. And so they perceived that paganism was a hindrance to the setting up of the papacy. That was the preceding power. And the papacy, of course, is mentioned there as the transgression of desolation. They also agreed that the word sacrifice shouldn't be there at all. It was put there by Bible translators. It's a supplied word. That's why it's in italics in the King James Bible. Here are some thoughts from... Uh, a couple of the pioneer issue, uh, pioneers on this issue. Ellen White said, I saw in relation to the daily in Daniel 8 that the word sacrifice was supplied by man's wisdom does not belong to the text and that the Lord gave the correct view of it to those who gave the judgment hour cry. When union existed before 1844, nearly all were united on the correct view of the daily. But in the confusion sense, other views have been embraced. And uh, Uriah Smith says, the expression denotes a desolating power of which the abomination of desolation is but the counterpart. 
and to which it succeeds in point of time. It seems clear, therefore, that the daily desolation was paganism, and the abomination of desolation is the papacy. Uriah Smith says, instead of sacrifice, it should say desolation, the daily desolation. And then later, the next power was the abomination of desolation. Why is that important? Because in Adventist theology, in interpreting the scriptures, in interpreting the prophecies of Daniel, uh, Daniel 8 and others, we recognize the day-for-a-year principle. And it meshes really well with the daily desolation being followed by the abomination of desolation in the 2300-day prophecy. Those who oppose it say, no, that's the daily sacrifice. And if you read it literally day for a day, then it refers to Antiochus Epiphanes coming in and desolating the temple. A completely different view of Scripture, a preterist view of Scripture. So it's very important. I want to move quickly to one other thing here to try to help drive home this uh, issue of, of reading the Bible with a little bit wider eyes uh, for what the Bible translators have done and maybe helping you out with something. All right, in Exodus 3.14, I'm turning there quickly. You will recognize... Uh, you will recognize this language very quickly. As Moses is being called to go and uh, release his people uh, from Egypt, and he's struggling with that, and he's saying, yeah, but I'm I, 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 I making all kinds of excuses. And, uh, and Moses, he, God has an answer for every one of his excuses. And then finally Moses is, says, well, in verse 13, he says, well, well what am I going to say? Who, who, who sent me? Who should I say sent me? And in verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And every single letter there is capitalized. I am who I am. That entire phrase is a title of God. He said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now in the Hebrew, that word there, for translated I am is hayah. And it basically means to be, to become, to come to pass, to exist is perhaps the best word, to exist, to happen. And we all know, we recognize that Jesus quoted that scripture when he was dealing with the Jews. And that's in John 8. I'm turning to that as well. In John 8, keep your finger in John because I'm going to look at a few texts here. But in John 8, we recognize this portion where Jesus does that quotation. Uh, in verse 57, the Jews said to him, to Jesus, him is capitalized, the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, and it's all capitalized again. I am. It's a name of God he's giving there. And what is the response of the Jews? We must kill this man for blasphemy because they recognize that he's claiming the name of God. They understand exactly what he's saying here. What you may not know is that Jesus has been building up to this. This, there's been a crescendo through John, and this is now the exclamation point. But look what comes before it. Uh, and, and by the way, the word here that is translated I am in the Greek now is I me, and it means the same thing, to be, to exist, to happen, to be present. So here's the buildup. Go to John, uh, still in chapter 8, still the same passages of Scripture, verse 24. Now remember what I told you about italicized words, right? You know, what, you know what that means when you see an italicized word. So Jesus is talking to the Jews, and in verse 24 he says, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that... What does it say? If you do not believe that I am, 
You'll die in your sins. Now it's couched. He didn't come out and make it as blatant as saying, before Abraham was, I am. That's the one that really got him his death decree. But he's building up to it here already. And then verse again in verse 28. Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. They're hearing this. It's irritating them. It's pricking them. They don't like the way he's using this language. But until he hits that exclamation mark a little bit later on at the end of the chapter, they don't call it blasphemy. They're irritated by it. But now look even beyond. And this is marvelous. In chapter 13, verse 19, Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass that you may believe that I am. Who's he talking to there? This is the disciples. This is at the Last Supper. He has just washed their feet. He's giving his last words to them. And he says, when it comes to pass, before, uh, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does come, you may believe that I am. It's the same message he's still giving. So when all these things I've been telling you about, when they come, you'll know I am. One more to look at. This is marvelous. Verse uh, Chapter 18. Now he's been uh, taken from the garden. He's been spit upon. He has been uh, uh, brought before the high priest. And now he's before Herod. Now he's before Herod in chapter 18. And uh, let's go to verse... Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This is before, this is in the garden. This is in the garden in chapter 18. He's in the garden. Judas has now betrayed him. And it says in verse 3, Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all things that would come upon him, knowing everything that was going on, said, Who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am. I am the present one. I am the existent one. Same thing, using the very same language that got him his death decree. Could you do that? If they were looking for you, for what you believed, and here they come with their torches and their, and their troops and their swords. And you know what that means. Who are you looking for? I am. No backing down at all from Jesus on who he was. I am. What should our response to be to all of that? I always think of Job as he's sitting there in all of his miseries, as all these terrible things have come upon him, and his friends are coming to him and, uh, and giving him advice about how sinful he must be to be in this position. And all of these terrible things. You know, he actually says, I, I wish that my words could be written down so that people could read them later on. Kind of a prophetic thing to say, you know. Uh, and he says, all of these, he says, this is turned against me. That is turned against me. Everybody hates me. Uh, you know, my life is in ruins. I'm in pain all the time. And he says, but I know my Redeemer lives. I know my Redeemer lives. Jesus, on the one hand, is saying, I am, I live, I exist, I am. 
And Job, in the midst of all this turmoil, says, I know that the I am lives. I know my Redeemer lives. And that, I think, is the message to us. When we listen to Jesus claim this in smaller ways as he's building up to the punctuation mark there to the Jews when he says, before Abraham was, I am. And even afterwards, when they come to him in the garden and they say, we're looking for Jesus. And he says, I am. He's claiming that name, that existing one from before Abraham was. And when we're going through our trials, and we will, I know some of your trials out there. I, I see the prayer lists. And I know some of the things that are going on. I'm, I'm sure there's all kinds of stuff I don't know. But we go through lots of struggles. But to be able to be Job, to hear the words of Jesus, that he is the I am, and to be like Job, and to recognize that even though these things are going on in our lives that make no sense, even though these things are going on that hurt, that scare us to death, still, I know my Redeemer lives. The I am. I invite you to join with me in singing. I know now you're going to say we're going to sing He Lives. We're not going to sing He Lives. We're going to sing Open My Eyes. That we can see better as we're reading the Bible and as we're hearing these expressions of Jesus as He's talking, that they will come new to us. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our minds, open our hearts that we get the Bible, we get the Word of Jesus fresh in our heart today. I hope you mean it when you say those words. Without the organ, join with me. Silently now I wait for Thee, ready, my God, Thy will to see. Open my heart, illumine me. Spirit divine. Almighty God, Holy Spirit, my Redeemer, the great I am, the all-existent eternal one, three-in-one, Trinity, Father God. To you we pray, not only that our eyes and our hearts and our minds will be opened, to new glimpses of truth that you have for us. But also, no matter what we go through, no matter what our struggles are, that we always see you as the I am, the existent one. To be able, like Job, in a time of turmoil, in the time of trouble and pain and great struggling, when it seems the whole world has turned against us, to still, even in that misery, be able to see. But I know my Redeemer lives. Live in us today, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.